Change is always a challenge to one's faith. There is no faith without risk. God's method is to take a clean man, a clean woman, and drop them in the midst of a corrupt society to demonstrate the power of his grace. We have a family saying that his disposition is a decision. And so if you get up every day and say, I'm going to make this a good day, chances are more times than not, it will be. If you started out, and this is what so gets me fired up, if you started out at your 20s or early 30s and started maxing out your Roth and your 401k, did nothing else, you're going to be rich when you get to be in your 50s or 60s. There's no question about it. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Listening to Michael Easley in context. I'm your co-host Hannah Seymour, and I'm sitting here with Michael Easley. How you doing today, Dad? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing splendidly. You get any sleep as a as a, a, a mom <laughs> with a young baby? No, no. We're in our four month sleep regression right now. I've never <laughs> been more tired in my life. Uh, maybe maybe we were the most tired his first two weeks of life, but. It's so foggy, you can't even remember it, you know? So anyway, we're surviving. We're having fun. It's your new norm. It's your new norm, yeah. <laughs> they they tell me, uh, I don't know, it, it gets better. I'm not sure. <laughs> Somehow people have more of these. I don't know. We'll see. You're not there yet. Okay. So speaking of what now, what do I do with this infant? <laughs> we are in the What Now series. According to a new survey from Bankrate.com, 65% of Americans save little or nothing, and half could end up struggling in retirement. Bankrate estimates that half of the American population won't be able to maintain their standard of living once they stop working. And another report found similar results that over 40% of Americans have less than $10,000 saved for when they retire. It's pretty chilling data. And I know from your mom's and my experience, we, we know too many people that are our age that have to work until they die, that have really no plan. We know couples that are older than us yeah. that are so upside down financially. It's like, what were you thinking all these years? You yeah. can't start this when you're 60. You, you can't plan for this. It's too late. And so it's a you know, this message of all the series, probably, even though we're listening to an elderly man talk about facing your last few decades, this stuff is critical in your 20s and 30s and not too late in your 40s, but you've got to get on a game plan uh, to understand what you're going to face financially. It's going to happen before you know it. And it's so funny because I feel like you live in one of two camps. Either you're in a camp where you're hearing about this all the time. You know all the Dave Ramsey you know, baby steps, snowball debt, you know, all of these things, or you're not talking about it at all. Tyler and I, Tyler has kind of made himself a um, 
I will help you learn how to budget and, you know, name every dollar in your in your budget and tell it where to go. And so he and I have met with so many couples, some younger, <laughs> some older than us, truly. And he and he teaches them how to put a budget together. And he practically sells a uh, checking account with a bank that I won't name on here. <laughs> but um but I mean, he really like this bank should be paying my husband for all that he evangelizes for them. But we recently sat down with a couple who just got married and it was the first time and they're probably five years younger than us. It was the first time ever in one of these sit downs that a couple said, OK, what percentage are y'all doing Roth IRAs? Are you investing in stocks? Literally, no one had ever asked us that question. And it just goes to show that for folks who are just now thinking I need to be setting up a budget the idea of starting to save and plan for retirement, it seems so far away, you just don't even feel like you need to be thinking about it. Unfortunately, there's a number of things that work against our culture. Number one is consumerism. Number two is materialism. And I use the isms importantly because we're all consumers. We all consume stuff. But consumerism is that I've got to have the next generation iPhone, the next generation uh, MacBook Pro Air or whatever it is, the next generation fill in the blank, the newer newer car, the uh, electric cars. We're driven as consumerism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's almost this, I have to have this, not should I or do I or can I afford it? I have to have it. Secondly, the percentage of your peer with incredible college debt yeah. And grad school debt. Lots of student loans. Unprecedented student loans. Yeah. Uh, one couple that you and I both know, she came out of her second degree with 120 grand of student loans. Yeah, it's overwhelming. It will take them a lifetime to pay that back along with a mortgage. So the consumerism, materialism, have it now. And as one of our guests is going to talk about, people that have been in school a long time and they, they think they deserve to have certain things materially because they have been deprived of them for so long, mm-hmm. so to speak. So the culture is a heavy advertising influence around you, depending on where you live. It takes a lot of courage to swim up against the st- against the stream and say, I'm not going to get into that kind of debt. We took you, I believe you were 17 years of age? Probably 16 or 17. Uh, this goes back to our time in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. was the first time ever uh, Dave Ramsey had done a simulcast from the Nashville area to other churches, mm-hmm. Emmanuel Bible Church, the church we were with in uh, the D.C. area, simulcast it on our screens, yep. a full auditorium. Uh, your mother and I drug you there. You did not want to go. No. What 16, 17-year-old wants to go to a finance lecture? Because you like <laughs> hanging out with your parents. <laughs> I, I think I did. I think that's a true statement, but maybe not. So we drag you to uh, the Dave Ramsey uh, Financial Peace University one-day seminar. Yep. And you're dutifully taking notes in your little book, but bitter, (laughs) until he says. Something to the effect of if you put 2,000, if you start at 18 years old, this could be totally wrong. So, you know, no one take this for the gospel truth. But if you put $2,000 a year in a Roth IRA beginning at the age of 18, one, you'll be a millionaire by some number that seemed not too far from from 18. And two, if you wait and don't start saving until what, 25, 25. you will never catch up. So what I could accomplish from 18 to 25 in seven years would not only accrue to a million dollars by, let's say, 50, but... I think it was 65. If I started at 25, I would literally never catch up. 
And that, that's a formula that's it's proved again and again and again. Compounding interest rates, even if it's a small amount starting in your teens, your early 20s, throughout your earning years compared to let me start when I get a job in my 20s or yeah. 30s or, I quote, I have enough money, it never, it never happens. No. And you, I, you can't catch up. I just remember thinking, okay, $2,000 a year? I can do this. <laughs> and you did. And I tease college students today in some respects, like you're richer right now than you will be for the next decade of your life because, I mean, most college students, they're not paying for rent. Their parents are helping them with all of their living expenses. My grandfather was sending me $100 a month in college and grad school. He called it makeup money. But so I had 100 Pizza, pizza and makeup. Well, makeup and pizza, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I had more disposable income as a eight, truly as an 18 to 24-year-old because I went through grad school through 24 than I did post-grad school because I finally had a full-time job. I needed to pay rent. I had my car insurance, my cell phone bill, everything, you know, that you and mom had paid for my whole life fell on me. Um, so it was a lot easier to save $2,000 when I had very little bills and other responsibilities versus once you're full-time adult. Well, you got a teenage kid that's working a summer job. Yeah. He or she could, if they can't hit the full 2000 they could get $1,500, $1,200, 1, toward that IRA. And to start it and to see it start to accumulate, what, what a magnificent thing to see. And it's tax-free money. You're putting it away. Yep. And, uh, boy, let it build for you uh, before you get into having a mortgage and having a family and having children and all totally. of the other expenses that go with being an adult. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, Prof Hendricks will talk about this in this upcoming lecture. Studies show the average person dies within seven years post-retirement, and many die within the first two. It's pretty scary. I was in a college at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, where the bumper stickers say, if you go to SFA, it's not hard to be humble. <laughs> So I worked bad. for a uh, <laughs> I worked for a Ford dealership. I was a mechanic and uh, through a college, and um, there was a gentleman there named Rayburn Parrot. Uh, his nickname was Nub, <laughs> N-U-B, because the Ford Motor Company worked him to a nub. Wow! And that's only what a mechanic would understand when a tool is worked down to a nub. Rayburn was a brilliant mechanic. He, I don't believe, went to high school. Uh, he knew more about carburetors and uh, things than anyone in the shop. In fact, if you had a certain problem, you would sort of mea culpa your way over to Nub and say, can you help me with <laughs> yeah. this? And, um, but he was a classic guy, an incredibly hard worker, very disciplined man. And I forget the precise time, Hannah, but he retired and he died. It was within a month or two. After his retirement. How old do you think he was when he retired? Uh, it's probably in his 70s. He looked older because he'd been a mechanic for all of it. It's Long hard time, work. Yeah. He, he was worn out. And um, I remember just being overwhelmed with what what a – he worked so hard until his, I'm going to guess, early 70s. And then it was over. And uh, I think a lot of it in his case – and I don't want to pretend I know all the answers to these things. But I've seen it a lot. That people have nothing to do. Yeah. They lose purpose. They're not getting up the same time every day. Uh, now, now, many will transition, and we'll hear from Prof in other interviews today uh, about some alternatives. But it takes a lot of uh, discipline and fortitude to say, I'm not going to be like the masses. Hmm. And that is a big differential whether you're 20 or 60. You've got to make some tough choices as you face this, quote, retirement, which we're going to hear Prof 
dismantle this idea of changing and transitioning after your career. Well, let's go ahead and join Prof. Hendricks in the W.H. Griffith Thomas Lecture Series. Norman Cousins said it, retirement, supposedly to be a chance to win, to join the winner's cycle, has turned out to be more dangerous than automobiles and LSD. It is the chance to do everything that leads to nothing. It's the gleaming brass ring that unhorses the rider. Too frequently, retirement is an assignment to no man's land, grossly ill-fitted for contemporary culture, producing a suddenly unemployed person without a mission. Studies consistently show that the average person dies within seven years after retirement. And it is not uncommon for people to die within the first two years. The reason is clear. There are two lines in a person's life. The lifeline and the purpose line. Once the lifeline evaporates, it's just a matter of time before the lifeline ceases. Let me give you the game plan for this lecture. I want to invade two areas. First of all, the critical insights of retirement. And secondly, the critical issues of retirement. Let's look at the critical insights. There are four of them, the first of which is the concept of retirement. Retirement is a relatively recent social phenomenon. The arbitrary year of 65 was set in 1889 by Germany's Chancellor Bismarck at the age when his government would begin paying benefits to old age survivors. At the time, the lifespan and expectancy was approximately 55. <laughs> Thus, most e eligible candidates would have died. But the idea was good politics. On August 4, 1935, the U.S. signed into law something called the Social Security Act one of the most comprehensive programs for social welfare ever undertaken by direct legislation. Part of this law was the Old Age and Survivors Insurance Program to provide for a basic retirement income after the age of 65 for insured wage earners. The second insight involves the context. This dramatic shift in public acceptance of government support for older citizens flies in the face of Judeo-Christian principles. It spurted out of the 19th century so-called age of reason, which had convinced most of the civilized world that mankind's problems could be fixed by human effort. 
In Great Britain and Europe, poverty had not been relieved by the church. And thus, by the early 20th century, almost every European nation had adopted some national program, most including widows and orphans as well. Because of our vast land resources, our, our agricultural economy, and a relatively simple pattern of commerce, the United States enjoyed a higher standard of living. One historian said, those years were characterized by a generally accepted belief that personal initiative and industry were all that was necessary for the advancement of personal success. It became a traditional belief that indigence is always synonymous with incompetence. And any government aid given the financially unfortunate carried with it the taint of pauperism. I was brainwashed with that concept. As a child of six, I required glasses. But my grandparents, who could not afford it, faced a dilemma. Someone suggested to them there was a clinic in our community where a child could get the glasses provided by the government. But welfare to my grandparents was next to disaster. And they worked and scraped and saved during the Depression until finally they got enough money to buy me a pair of glasses. And then they were satisfied. What is not found in history textbooks is that Americans, until nearly mid-20th century, held steadfastly to biblical standards which present God as the provider and sustainer throughout all of the human lifespan. Not only the idea of federal financial support, but any arbitrary designation of a time to stop working is simply not found in the Bible. A lifetime of work continues until death. The Mosaic Law fixed the retirement age for Levites at age 50, Numbers 8.25, they were retired from their arduous work, but not from life and ministry. Perhaps their greatest contribution came in their latter years when they spent their time mentoring the younger priests. This sense of being needed stems from the biblical model. Consider several Old Testament examples. Abraham the man of faith who fathered Isaac as a hundred-year-old, in his last 75 years married a second wife and bore six more sons. Genesis 25 describes his last days. He bequeathed all his estate to his son Isaac, the promised son by Sarah. At 175 years, he, quote, breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered 
to his people. The venerable commentaries, commentators Kyle and Dalich explained this expression, and he was gathered to his people as distinguished from simply departing this life and being buried. His work was complete, but not until he died. Jacob said to his son Joseph, Genesis 48, 21, I am about to die, and the entire 49th chapter is devoted to an account of his prophecies concerning his son and instructions for his burial. With no struggle, he lay down on his bed and breathed his last breath. His assignments were complete. The third insight underscores the conditions. Today, you and I are faced with an entirely new dilemma. While the average American retires at or before 62 years, government entitlements and generous pension plans have made retirees, on the average, financially comfortable for a kind of senior play period of a significant number of years increasing yearly. Paul Tournier, reporting to the World Health Organization, writes, there are countless retired people fit for work who are struggling against boredom and who feel themselves suddenly to be on the scrap heap. This stupid problem of the idleness of the retired is one that primarily affects the industrialized West dedicated to competition, which begins in school and impregnates the whole of working life, business, and culture. Competition is life for the industrialized West. Retired persons are excluded from the competition by virtue of being old. But what happens? No more competition, no more life. Our world slaps the retiree on the back and shouts, live it up, man, have a blast. If a person has lived his or her whole life working, competing in a dog-eat-dog environment, that person now faces a consignment to fun and games, equivalent to a death sentence, a gradually diminishing sense of purpose. In a visit, to the Israeli kibbutz, Nafginasar, some years ago. I was fascinated by visiting a small electronics factory where parts were assembled for various mechanical devices. Each adult male had a workstation, irrespective of his age. Our guide explained that as a man grew older, he himself decided how many hours he could work. No matter how few hours, he was expected to show up and perform some work as his contribution to the success of the kibbutz. I met a 91-year-old man and asked him, how many hours a week do you work? He said, 10, two each for five days, and his face billboarded his pride in terms of his contribution 
And then he added, and my work is still the best in the caboose. <laughs> well, what about the correctives? How then does a modern 21st century believer fit into a mandatory retirement plan, into a work-to-the-end view we retain from our Bible study. I'd like to suggest three correctives for our typical contemporary thinking. First, we must embrace and practice self-determination. Our biblical models died as they lived with self-control. This is a given. Barring divine intervention by catastrophic means, we will spend our last years, our last hours, with an intensification of the same thinking and behavior that has served us throughout life. If I have been a lackadaisical whiner, I will likely complain longer and louder as my aging body malfunctions. On the other hand, if I have been an intentional and prudent student of my life, I will likely manage my personal deceleration with controlled use of my dwindling strength. If you are lazy now, you will be more lazy in your latter years. If you are undisciplined now, you will be more undisciplined in those final years, as now. So then, listen to Tim Stafford's take on biblical old age. Does the Bible idealize old age? Hardly. Isaac, Jacob, Eli, and Ahijah were all, all suffered from failing eyesight. Barzillai was hard of hearing and lost his sense of taste. And David had chronically poor circulation in his last year. These cases are presented as facts that require no explanation. The brutal reality is that we may or may not have good physical health, but retirement at a fairly young age is expected in our country. Early retirement is in. But what does this mean for a believer? Paul Tournier, in his brilliant treatise on aging, Learn to Grow Old, every student ought to read that book, emphasizes that retirement is a learning process. It should begin early in life with developing oneself to progress, to contribute, to find meaning in life constantly. The danger is very real that we will die before we are buried. There are, says Tournier, two great turning points in life, the passage from childhood to adulthood and the passage from adulthood to old age. Need I remind anyone that we live and work in a high danger zone? Preparation is critically urgent with phones, faxes, TVs, computers, and print ads relentlessly suggesting choices that play to our weaknesses and mismanagement of our resources, Tournier's idea of sinking into passivity 
is staggeringly valid. The second corrective, we must jettison the secular concept of retirement. It is often God's way of releasing the believer from daily responsibilities in order to allow him or her to devote more time and effort to ministry. Biblical lives clearly picture God's design for man, that we live all of our allotted time on earth, motivated to glorify him. Our secular working lives are a practical set of circumstances in which to plant seeds of faith a network of stepping stones for future outreach. And I believe the most exciting and fulfilled human beings I have ever met, I am meeting in increasing numbers across this country. Men and women who have retired, many of them by choice early, in order to invest the rest of their life in serving the Savior. I was in Belém, Brazil, a number of years ago. Met a man who had come to be the administrator of the mission, that for which they prayed desperately for 17 years. He is a commander of a battleship in the United States Navy. He retired at age 53. And he said to me, Dr. Hendricks, this is the most exciting time of my life. Think of it. All of my experience, all of my training, all of my giftedness, I now get to use in the service of Christ and totally paid for by the United States government. <laughs> Gene and I spent a fascinating weekend with 400 surgeons over at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. I've never been among a group of such excited medical people, most of whom were at the top of the pile in their field. They were like a collection of kids talking to me about how exciting it was to spend the rest of their life in third world countries representing Jesus Christ with their medical giftedness. Malcolm Muggeridge, crusty British journalist, who trusted Christ as a result of interviewing Mother Teresa, observed that few men of action have been able to make a graceful exit at the appropriate time. In his early experience, he had firsthand knowledge of many who, like Humpty Dumpty, were pushed off the wall, dazed and bewildered, shattered into many pieces, Life ended for them with a futile grasp of broken fragments. Then he watched a woman, quiet, frail, and aging, tending to hopeless vagrants with love and tenderness, simply caring. This way, Mother Teresa, a woman admired by a world, served Jesus Christ with fulfillment until the day she died. Many do not understand the secret of serving until the day God calls them home. The third corrective I would recommend, we must exercise a virile faith. 
Because God is sovereign in my life, gratitude to him is my normal response. No government, no company, nor any other power must be allowed the right to interdict the use of the Christian's energies. Again, the Apostle Paul proclaims in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Change is always a challenge to one's faith. There is no faith without risk. God's method is to take a clean man, a clean woman, and drop them in the midst of a corrupt society to demonstrate the power of his grace. Christians live in a world that is constantly changing, but they trust in the one who never changes. Bob Beale suggests a thoughtful alternative when he says substituting the word transition for the traditional word retirement offers a whole new perspective on our latter years. These are the critical insights. But let's look at the critical issues. The Alcan Highway once posted a sign Choose your rut carefully because you will be in it for the next 2,000 miles. <laughs> Nothing is more appropriate for one contemplating retirement. No tradition has yet placed importance on the latter years as a crucial stage of life. Thus it becomes whatever one makes of it. To not a few, it's a windowsill from which people leap to their death soon after they set foot on it. There are advance warning signals, but most people choose to ignore them. As we have seen, the whole idea of retirement is less than 100 years old. The term itself is from an old French word made up of a prefix meaning back and a verb meaning to draw together or to withdraw first English use recorded in 1553 refers to a military force that withdrew and retreated. This may account then for our discomfort with the term retirement. Who wants to retreat? Who wants to withdraw? When for many it is simply death on the installment plan. Most people over 65 still want their lives to count and are ready to use their skills and giftedness. Luke 2, 29 should be the closure for every believer. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. We should have finished the work God gave us to do. The Roman Empire died not because it had been beaten or overthrown, but because it had nothing it wanted to live for. And so did too many people, including Christians. A man or a woman facing this personal paradigm shift grapples with four paramount problems. Practical, anxiety-producing barriers which must be surmounted. 
The first of them is finances. In our Western world, where money is the blood bank of survival, the rising costs of living with fixed, limited, and shrinking incomes build a wall that is truly daunting. 77% of all assets in the United States are held by relatively few people, but all over the age of 55, except Bill Gates. <laughs> this fact highlights the urgency of wise investment of money in the early years. In his book, Storm Shelter, Ron Blue, the financial expert, suggests four basic principles that you need to weave into your thinking. First, to set goals. Second, to follow a spending plan. Third, to avoid debt. And fourth, to increase giving to God. Statistics, he says, paint an ugly picture of the priorities of Christians. Giving should not be merely a pillar of your financial plan. It should be the cornerstone. His five reasons for giving pay off in old age. First, giving breaks the power of money in contrast to debt, which controls. Second, giving promises rewards. Third, giving provides an eternal perspective. Fourth, giving demonstrates God's total ownership. And five, Giving exhibits obedience to God's command. For self-employed people, Ted Engstrom advises that you save 10 to 15% of your earnings each working year. IRAs and Keogh plans are designed for this very purpose. Anyone can begin to save, and everyone needs to, he reminds us. Let me plead with you not to be discouraged by limited resources. Commit what you have to the Lord. Ask him to help you to learn how to manage the money you do have. The second problem is physical health concerns. Closely aligned with the financial is health care, which looms and stalks older people whose bodies are showing wear and tear. The American Medical Association indicates there are no diseases of the aged, only diseases among the aged, which tells you that aging and poor health are not coterminous. But you ask, why is poor health so common in advanced years? Overwhelming evidence points to poor maintenance as the reason. If you're going to enjoy your health later, maintain your health now. Six out of ten leading causes of death are nutritionally related, all of which are controllable by you. It's estimated that the average person in America spends 70% of all he ever spends on health care in the final year of his life. The third concern is living arrangements. The disappearance of the extended family 
and the breakdown of solidarity and the sense of responsibility of adult children have spawned an unwillingness to provide for older relatives, either in their own homes or in retirement homes, and indications are that this disinterest is growing. When Jean and I placed my mother in a home, a nursing home here in Dallas, I built an, built an incredible friendship with an elderly woman residing across the hall from my mother. I learned this dear woman had four children, all of whom live in Dallas, two of whom live within two miles of the nursing home, and none of them ever came to visit her. The implications of the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20, 12, place on one's family the obligations of caring for older loved ones, but the family is failing. And planning for housing well in advance, before retirement, produces peace of mind for everyone. But the final issue is purpose and meaning in life. This component of life, least recognized and most neglected, often turns up missing at a late age and is significantly affected by the first three. If an older person has a head-on collision with health, housing, or cash flow, then meaning and purpose in life are skewed disproportionately. Although it should have been addressed years before, the core essence of life becomes a major priority when a daily job no longer requires one's attention. To embark upon a totally different life requires careful and sensitive foresight. The traditional gold watch at a company farewell can be an omen of boredom and disillusionment. Here is the principle you want to place right in the middle of your head. You retire to something. You do not retire from something. For Christians, however, there's no such thing as retirement in terms of God's purpose. One may retire from a job. You may not have an option. But you never retire from life. You never retire from ministry. All play and no work, and all work and no play are equally boring. Retirement may be analogous to a trapeze artist in a routine exchange. There are two successive moments. First, in an attachment which provides solid support, and then a release which enables freedom and confidence to find a new support. Release is essential to renewal. Mountain drivers often encounter the sign, steep grade ahead, use low gear aging with its unavoidable personal losses and inescapable dis diseases and physical loss of physical energy, requires shifting gears into a slower mental concentration for the climb of the final years. 
The future which one has always dreamed about is there, staring one in the face. Like hitting a fog bank, there is no way to see ahead. Even the rear mirror can't help. Living by faith in the advancing years then becomes more essential than ever. You know, Prof makes the comment that aging is unavoidable in its personal loss and inescapable in the disease and the loss of physical energy as we get older. And this, this is hard stuff, Hannah, and it does require living by faith as we approach these uh, years or maybe, in God's kindness, decades. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to talk with two folks, kind of pulling from what Prof just talked about. The first is Jeff Dobines. Tell me a little bit. How do you know Jeff? Jeff is a certified financial planner here in the Middle Tennessee area. He's become a friend over the last uh, five or six years now, and uh, we've encouraged a number of our friends to go sit with the Dobines Wealth Management Group. That sounds presumptuous, like we have wealth, but the reality of it is we're all managing our money, mm-hmm. and so you need a wealth manager to think through this. And I'm shocked, Hannah, how many of our peers don't do this. So in your mom's and my experience with uh, Dobines and his group, as well as many friends, we've learned so much about financial planning beyond uh, fully funding your, your retirement package, and do you have enough health care when you die? Yep. And maybe I uh, help my kids out a little bit. Yep. A lot more available, and the resources that a good planner can offer are um, really, it's an opportunity you should grab. So I wanted Jeff to come in the studio and talk to us at a high level about things he sees in, uh, in people and how they manage their wealth, either well or poorly. And just to bring it back to folks that aren't you know, thinking that they're heading towards retirement, you and mom really encouraged Tyler and I within our first year of marriage to go to Jeff's office and meet with a planner looking at our budget and how to start planning ahead. And we never would have known that we needed to have a will, an estate plan, start talking about life insurance on both of us, especially now that we have a child. Um, I don't think we would have done any of those things, even even though you and mom have modeled that perhaps and I just wouldn't have known. But it was sitting down with a financial planner and we're not wealthy, though we joke people think we are because Tyler owns his own company. <laughs> we are not wealthy. But um, it's huge to have someone that we get to check in with on an annual basis that goes, okay, guys, you're doing great here. Let's start setting goals for you to move right. in this direction. And we all have our areas of strength. For example, a physician, uh, he or she knows medicine and chemistry and anatomy and and their specialization. A a musician may be a great sight reader. They know their instrument. They know how to produce or engineer. On and on it goes. Uh, Who are we to think that there's not someone out there that can help us with an area like our finances? Very few people understand the things you just brushed over real quickly. A state plan, a percentage of your income you should save. What about giving to the Lord? How how and when do you do that? How do you determine that stuff? And it's just like all of life. We need mentors to sit down and help us. So this isn't just a financial uh, discussion. To me, this is a spiritual stewardship discussion about your time, your talents, and your treasures. What are you doing with what God has given you? And that's a spiritual issue as much as anything in this discussion about facing what's next, what's in our future. 
Okay, so we're going to listen to you and Jeff Dobine's talk, but after that, we're going to hear from Dr. Bert Sanders. Tell me, why did you want to have your friend Doc Sanders on? Bert and I have become friends the past four or five years as well. He's an internal medicine uh, physician, a primary care physician, and I've learned so much from him. Uh, just not only is he great in medicine, but his holistic view of life. And he has what he calls the big five that I love to hear him talk about. So I invited him in to come and talk about this big five that all of us can apply no matter how old we are. Well, we are in studio with Jeff Dobines. Jeff is the president of the Southwestern Investment Group. Let's talk a little bit about what an investment group does, because we're talking to folks in this series of broadcast about planning. And this mm-hmm. is just one piece that I want to, to, to provoke their thinking. You've got to be intentional about your money. I was talking with some friends recently, and it's just fascinating. Either people love handling their money and love the finances, or they really don't like the planning part. It's not amazing. much gray. Yeah. Which is really, it's interesting to me because I, I'm the one that loves it. It's all I really am good at. It's all I love to talk about. And you can make so much progress if you can just put your head down and get into it. But it is an interesting thing where you have to really stop. I, I think people have all this other noise of their kids, their work, their passions. And you've got to kind of put all that on hold sometimes, not a lot, but periodically just to kind of sit down and say, hey, where are we and where do we want to go and how do we get there? And that's what I enjoy doing is kind of getting down with people sitting at the kitchen table and saying, okay, where are you and what can we do to help? I was talking with a friend the other day who's a little younger than me and has no financial plan. Hmm. And I'm encouraging him, you know, to talk to some folks to get some help. And his one of his responses was, well, they just take all your money from you. And I thought, well, maybe that's true in some planning groups. But I said, that's where you're doing your homework, just like anything you buy in life, right? So you want to know that the person that you're buying this product from is giving you a good product, but they also have to make a living. Mm -hmm. So help us understand sort of the metrics when a person goes to any financial planner. What what should they look for? That's a great question. I'm always curious what what the customer, what the client's perspective is. And I'd be curious about the guy who said they always take the money. I wonder if that's uh, not to throw anybody under the bus, but if that's kind of the insurance that world, you know, my granddad worked for Nationwide for 40-some years, so I admire that world. But that tends to be maybe an area where people get a little disenchanted and feel like you know they, they are talked into a budget and they have to put X amount of money into some type of whole life policy. And if they don't, they have failed miserably. And, and that's a tough – that's probably not a super encouraging approach. Now, what the Dobines Wealth Group does is not only – financial investment. You work with attorneys, accountants, other professionals, talking about their estates, their long-term goals, children, grandchildren. And again, that's overwhelming to a guy like me. Yeah. You know, I went to a lot of school, but I wasn't trained in those terms. So when, when I come to a person like you or when someone else comes to you, that's a you don't figure that out in one meeting. Yeah. And I think that's where you really need somebody in our world to kind of have a roadmap or kind of say, okay, here's these things that we want to try to take care of over the next year. And it's never done. You know, it's kind of like a lot of things. You never achieve it. It's never accomplished. You never say, okay, that, my investment and retirement tax estate planning is finished. I'll never have to review it again. It's kind of an ongoing deal. But you can make a lot of progress. I was just talking with some clients the other day. He's retired CEO. And I said, you know what, we've, I congratulate you because you've accomplished a lot over the last year to 18 months. You know, they were working a lot. He was traveling all over the world. The most time they spent together over that last year was in our office. <laughs> which tells you about the work and uh, travel. 
But they uh, now that he's retired, we've we've been able to accomplish a lot. They've got all their state planning squared away. They've really got a handle on their taxes. They got their budget down. They have a huge emergency fund. They're accomplishing all they want for their kids and grandkids. And that's fun. And I think people can say if they can have somebody kind of walk with them and you know, I kind of visualize we if we're doing our job well, we need to do the heavy lifting. We need to be the ones reminding you. We need to be the ones thinking of things, taking care of it, and uh, and working with you. But but I love the fact our team and a good financial planning team can really be thinking about those things and be efficient. That way you don't you can do what you love to do and they can help you make some progress and accomplish what you're trying to do. You know, it's interesting because um, part of just the synergy of life in your 20s and 30s and 40s, you're busy. If you're married, you're having kids, you're raising little little guys and gals to, you know, learn all that stuff. And then when they're middle schoolers and high schoolers, there's, you know, you're so busy with life. Who has time to plan financially? And one of the, uh, it's the old joke about, you know, time management. You don't have time to manage your time. Well, you don't have money to plan an estate. So help us out with a 20-something, 30-something couple that has no concept of financial planning, and they're barely making a mortgage and probably have some uh, debt, mm-hmm. maybe student loans, maybe kids in private schools. How do they start? You don't have to have a lot of money, and especially if you have kids. I mean, that's something that, that our friend Dave talks about all the time, Ramsey, is you've got an obligation to try to help them get squared away. And so we need to have insurance. You know, I think that's something that most stay-at-home moms or moms with little kids, that, that husband needs to have a bunch of life insurance and doesn't have to cost a lot. Again, term insurance is really cheap. Um, so I think that's where you start with some good, cheap term insurance, a good will. You don't want something to happen, God forbid, and family be fighting over who's going to take care of the kids or who's going to take care of the money. And you don't want your spouse to be left without. So I think that's what motivates me is to kind of say, hey, let's just be sure. It doesn't, this isn't going to take a lot of time. not going to take a lot of effort. not going to be a big fight between the spouses typically. I've found that, mm-hmm. uh, that I worried about who my wife wanted to take care of the kids and how that was going to work out. And we were able to knock that out in just a few minutes and she was happy and <laughs> I was happy and, and now it's finished. So we, you right. know, we, we don't have to deal with that for another decade or more. Yeah. A young couple comes to you and uh, let's say uh, they have a combined income of under a hundred thousand. Let's say they have some school loans. Mm-hmm. Let's say they've got the term life policy. Uh, what would you tell them next? Everybody's situation is obviously different, but if they've got debt, we really want to try to attack that. That's, that's something I think with those twenties-year-olds that can really come get, catch them is that they've gotten out of school, they've got a little car loan, they have a house, and they try to figure out, okay, how do I get out of this debt? So I think that anything that you can do to help them start to make that go away, if they can focus that with some intensity, that actually is a great accomplishment. And so, again, going back to creating that emergency fund, getting out of debt as quickly as you can, then we can start really taking advantage of some of these retirement plans. So. When when you look at the average uh, person who saves or who doesn't save, what would you say would be a percentage of your income? That it, uh, granted, it's a little arbitrary. Sure. But where should we start? I think what we need to do is always max. If we can get to the point where we're funding a Roth IRA every year, that's a big deal. So for most people, it's fifty five hundred dollars for each person. That's a that's a big step. And if we can get passionate about doing that every year, we're going to make big progress later on. Then the next step would be doing your 401k plan. So if you have a match, then we want to at least be taking advantage Explain of Explain to the average person that doesn't know what a match is. Okay. So if you defer X amount of money, then your company will give you some additional benefits. So most companies have a program where they'll do some matching. So if you put in a dollar, they may put in five cents. Uh, and that doesn't seem like a lot, but over time, that's free money that we're not— But you got to go to your HR person, yep. your administrator, and say, hey, talk to me about this investment. 
because they're probably not going to take the initiative and explain that to you. Yeah, that's right. So you got to learn who to ask. So the 401, the IRAs. Mm-hmm. If we, I think, and then I'd stop there. I'd say, listen, there's so much great opportunity. We don't need to be distracted by all these other wonderful investments. There's only so much money. So there's great right. ideas, but only so much money to go around. I tell people. So, so. round numbers: if a couple had a hundred thousand dollar year income, what would be a percentage going to the IRA and their um, in the four one in the four one? If, if they could shelter somewhere around fifteen percent, because 15%, if they, if okay. they maxed out those two Ross and did a little in the four one k, most likely they're going to be in the fifteen percent tax bracket or fifteen percent contribution limits. And if they can start doing fifteen percent into those two Ross and their four one k plan. If that hurts a little bit, that's okay, uh, because they're not going to throw, they're not going to change their lives. Actually, if you started out, and this is what so fire gets me fired up, if you started out in your twenties or early thirties and started maxing out your Roth and your four hundred one k, did nothing else, you're going to be rich when you get to be in your fifties or sixties. There's no question about it. Why is that so hard to sell? Consumerism, instant gratification. I, I finished my college and my grad school. I got to have a BMW. I got to have an Escalade. I can't drive it. You know, eight-year-old car. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that consumerism is a big deal. Plus, I think we work with a lot of these young doctors, and they, they've had so much schooling. They've put off in, any type of gratification for so long. But I can remember leaving a house one night 15 years ago. A couple was making now maybe a million bucks a year or so, but they had a million dollars worth of debt. School loans, med, med school loans. Both of them have beautiful new cars, $100,000 SUVs. There's a, they're just never really going to get in a good position, sadly. Um, well, they could, but they, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do that much pain to themselves. They wouldn't get rid of it all and liquidate. That's right. And that's they could, hard. They, they felt like they they had earned the yeah. right to start spending because they hadn't spent for so many years. Yeah. So trying to keep up with all their buddies and delay gratification. Yeah, but that's what school. If you can start young, it doesn't really hurt that badly. Uh, and then what I've always felt is you can kind of pass on all these other super fancy investments and all these other great strategies everybody else is talking about. If you do those fundamentals long enough, you're going to be so wealthy, it's not going to matter. Let's talk about giving because you and I both have a heart uh, for giving. Yeah. And I know you on the side are involved with Men of Valor, a prison ministry in Mill, Tennessee. You've been part of the National Christian Foundation with other causes, uh, Porter's Call, which is a ministry here in the Nashville area. You've also, as, a, as an organization, done some really remarkable things where instead of maybe taking a, a benefit for your company, you've taken a, was it a CT machine down to uh, Haiti. Yeah. So you're doing some pretty creative things yourself from a generous giving to the Lord. Uh, talk to us about where you start your giving. What's that look like? I think what's really gotten me excited is there's a lot of obviously giving is is powerful. It's important, and I think what's happened with me over the last fifteen twenty years has kind of sh- shifted my thinking from how much more can we accumulate and all that to how much more can we can we give. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I love to talk with people about how can they give a little bit more, but how can we do it more efficiently? Because if we can give more, everybody wins. But the government, if we can give more, the charity gets more, and we pay less taxes. So mm-hmm. that's where I've been really inspired to try to talk about giving appreciated assets or. Ninety-five percent of the wealth in, the, in America is non-cash assets, so things like real estate, business interest, those types of things. But ninety-five percent of giving is done in cash, so it's very inefficient if people just write checks to charity. So, my mission is never write another check again to charity. Let's, which freaks every <laughs> all my pastor friends out. And all. <laughs> well, you told me a story and uh, about a person who lost millions of dollars in a cash transaction. Where had he given the property away? That's right. 
Open up that. Explain that a little bit for our, for our friends. We had a friend that's uh, in his 80s. His whole passion now is to give away the wealth that he's accumulated. He's got about 90 million or so. Super sweet, generous man. And so he wants to do this well. But he had sold a business, a bunch of banks, for roughly $90 million. And so he paid capital gains tax on that whole whole transaction. Had he transferred that stock ownership right before he sold it into a giving account, he would have avoided the capital gains tax. So there's $20 million, roughly, that he wrote to the IRS Treasury, which just kills me. So this is a great example. Here's a person who's done well, who's made incredible wealth, been very successful, but they don't know how to manage. Yeah, and sadly there, his he had, as you can imagine, a team of accountants, a team of but they don't know. attorneys. They don't know, and, and quite frankly, I, I'm not sure how much they care. Right, which, right. Uh, which goes back to the whole idea of a financial planner and a state planner, someone who's not just helping you invest your money and then you go home and you know maybe when I reach sixty five I have a really nice retirement you know fund waiting for me, but thinking about my kids, my health, right. long term care, how much do I give away? Uh, um, you know these donor advised accounts versus foundations. I'm astonished, Jeff, how many of my friends don't know what a donor advised account is. Much less the foundation. Help us with those. Well, the foundation, actually, that guy was just telling about, he had set up a foundation. The problem is a private foundation, which he had, couldn't own privately held stock, whereas a public foundation like a donor advised fund or National Christian Foundation could have owned that stock. So he asked the CPA, sadly, about that. CPA said, we can't do it, and it cost him $20 million bucks. So there's, uh, I think what I, the lesson there is if you, you need to be involved with advisors or accountants or CPAs that are. So, all right, you ran over that like ABCs for those in the financial nomenclature. Let's talk to a dumb guy like me. Okay. And so uh, when do I set up a foundation? What, what are the fulcrums? How much wealth do you have to have? How does that work? If you're not in the Rockefeller or Gates situation, typically the foundations are actually not as beneficial. And so over the last 20 years, these donor advised funds, which are essentially big f- firms that set one parent charity up, and then you can have hundreds or thousands of people underneath that account. So if you give to a seminary, you give to a mission, you give to missionaries individually, you can go to your financial planner and say, I want a donor-advised account. Yep. And then, uh, in your case, Raymond James would distribute those checks on a monthly, quarterly, whatever basis, whatever schedule you decide. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Cindy and I theoretically put the money in that account and then Raymond James manages the distribution of that. Why is that a help? So you avoid the capital gains on the on the investment. So let's say that you had um, $10,000 worth of um, Walmart stock, and your basis was a, was $1,000. You bought it 30 years ago, or your mom and dad passed away and gave it to you. That If you sell that and then give that money to seminary, to church, or charity, you have to pay capital gains tax on that whole amount, which is where that's where we that's where the government gets their taxes. We still get the charitable contribution, but we might, in that example, only had $8,000 to give. If we transfer that $10,000 into your giving account, then sell it, then you avoid the capital gains, and so we just have $2,000 more cash. So you avoid the capital gains, and the charity gets more money yep. than it would have otherwise. We hose the government. <laughs> so that's the strategy for financial How to hose the government. I told you, everybody wins with the government, and they actually prove it. I've probably told you the story. I had a pastor friend, uh, 80-year-old or so, had never had much investment wealth, but he had owned a couple stocks, and that stock ended up getting bought up, bought up, bought up. And so I think his investment was about $20,000. It turned into, literally, the company that bought it went to a million dollars overnight almost. 
they were making the undercarriages for Humvees back in the first Iraq war. And it was on the front page of the USA Today. He felt like that was God's money and he wanted to give it away to Kingdom Work. So we, he wanted me to sell it. If we had sold it, though, we would have paid $200,000 of capital gains tax. We transferred that into his giving account, sold it, and so we, we avoided paying two hundred grand in taxes. He still got the same income tax deduction, which is a pastor in his 80s. He didn't necessarily need a million-dollar tax deduction, but he got it. And then we were able to use that million dollars to give to Kingdom Work over the next three or four years, which was awesome. Coincidentally, he kept his – he had a little portion that he kind of felt was his money. And that stock dropped precipitously once the big defense firms gathered the same thing. So his two hundred thousand dollars went back to ten or fifteen grand. That <laughs> so he got out with what he put in. <laughs> yeah, but the portion that he really felt was God's money, he was able to recoup. So that's what fires me up because there's two hundred. This guy, his whole mission on this million dollars was to give it away. If we can give away the same effort but save two hundred thousand dollars, there's just two hundred thousand dollars free money there to go to charities. And people want to support them. Charities need the money. And if we can do it in a way that everybody wins and the government gets a little less, I think people get pretty excited about that. That then se- seems to me shifts their thought process to how do I accumulate more to how do I give more? And so that pattern's really pretty exciting to me. All right. So let's let's review. Okay. Number one, uh, young couple, 20s, 30s, 40s, what? IRA? IRA, probably a Roth. A Roth? 401k. 401k. Find out what your contribution to your employer is. Yep. They'll participate with that. You didn't mention HSAs. Oh, HSA. So HSA, health savings account, uh, probably most companies have them. They'll also match those, many yep. companies, right? What do you do with that money? You get to invest it. So this is something that uh, I'm really getting on board with now. It's, it's, they've gotten better. It's, this is a brilliant thing. As a family, you can choose either a traditional plan, usually through your employer, or an HSA. So if you do the HSA, you actually get a contribution, as you say. You get a tax deduction, and then you have that money growing tax-free if you invest it inside that account. And so the average consumer like Cindy and me don't ever use your HSA card. Just let it accumulate, right? Yeah. yeah. Most people do use that HSA card. We need to try to educate people to throw Because that I don't want to spend the $10 copay. So I whip out my HSA and I pay my $20, $30, $50 copay when if I leave that money alone, it's not being taxed and it's accumulating. That's right. Tax-free. And then you withdraw it tax-free. So my good friend Drew is calling that the triple tax-free. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, your IRA, your 401, your HSA, yep. and uh, and again, that's a discipline issue. My, my son-in-law runs a company, about 30 employees that are young, and he says he's a hard time explaining to them not to use their HSA. They just they just have to use that card. Yeah. And it's like, that's a bank account. Leave it alone, right? Yeah. I think and that might change over the next year, too, if we educate people and say, really, that that's like a Roth IRA, but better. So mm. we would never spend our Roth for 20 bucks for a copay. Yeah, if you got the twenty dollars copay or whatever copay, to spend it. That's right. As opposed to using your HSA. Okay, going forward, then your thirties, forties. What's next? If you have kids, I think you really have to take care of this life insurance and this will thing. It doesn't have to be that complicated. It can be pretty straightforward. But then, but I think that's, and, and their formulas for term life, depending on what your income level is, that's and right. how old you are, and that's another one. Earlier you get in. Better. The lower the rates are for term life, you keep it 10 years, 20 years? What do you recommend? I'd say until your kids are out of school. Okay. Out of college? Out of college, Out of yeah. college, okay. And Five, then wh- 529 plans are another great thing to do. So those are college savings plans, a.k.a. 529s. Yep. Now, you need to do some homework on those, right? Yeah, although that's even gotten a little more efficient. Has now. Yeah. So you, you used to get a state tax deduction, and you still do in some states, but it's so minimal it doesn't matter. So 
my suggestion is you just want to take advantage of those. Any any saving you're doing for your kid's school, if you do it in a 529 plan, again, you just you have to work hard. You don't have to work as hard because the money's grown tax free. So, we started out with our, our first child. We we didn't have the education about these funds. When we uh, had our second uh, daughter, uh, we started these little fifty dollar a month plans. And fifty bucks, you know, it's it's sort of like a bank draw. It's like Netflix. You, you know, when you set it up, you don't even know your your iTunes, whatever you don't. Uh, but we did that over the years, and amazingly, our goal wasn't super ambitious. It was we could probably afford state college for most of our kids, just in our income. Mm-hmm. But if anything accumulated in that five twenty nine, that was icing on the cake. If if the child wanted to go to a, a more expensive school. And um, interesting how those things work. And you can now roll them over to your family members, to grandchildren, all kinds of things, right? Yeah. So I think more more grandparents are actually taking advantage of 529 plans for the grandkids. And then if there's extra money in their family bucket, then you can use that for college for the great grandkids. So all you grandparents out there, you just heard Jeff encourage you, put a 529, a college savings plan type fund uh, for each of your grandkids in place. <laughs> See, I told you, I got all these great ideas. There is only so much money, so I get that to go around. But if we're in a situation where some of these things are really important, then we want to be efficient with those. And the government's giving us, they're hand-picking these things and saying, college, health investments, uh, health insurance costs, charitable contributions. We're going to help you with those by giving you these benefits. And it just, in my opinion, I think we just need to take advantage of those. One thing, Cindy and I, early in marriage, of course, we had no money. We, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know. We had no debt in God's great kindness. But we started giving $50 a month to the church. It was the first thing we ever did. And it mm-hmm. was it was a hard decision. 50 bucks was a lot of money in 1980. And, um, and we adopted this philosophy before Dave Ramsey was on the radio. Uh, Ron Blue was around. Uh, Crown was around. But we decided we would increase our giving before our standard of living. Hmm. And it's the principle we followed for 37 years in accounting was that we, we got to 10. We felt pretty proud about that. We were giving 10% of our income away before our mortgage, before whatever. And uh, a mutual friend, uh, a dear friend of Cindy's and mine, made the comment one day that she gave 20% of her income away. And we're probably in our mid, late 30s. And I was astonished. Hmm. And she made the comment to me. She said, Michael, I give away 20% and I still have more money than I ever thought. And then she later made the comment, I can live on 80% as well as I can live on 100%. Hmm. And that challenged Cindy and me to start increasing our giving and to nudge it up. It wasn't always super easy. But again, out of sight of the mind, once we started giving first and foremost, saying, Lord, this is your money. We're going to trust you. I, I call it, it's, it's, it's a statement of faith, and it's an act of love. I'm, I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to give this hmm. and see what God does. And you know, for us, I can't say for everybody, it's been a towering blessing in our marriage that we both love to give and to see how much we can give away by giving first and foremost. That's awesome. I'm on the board of a few of these nonprofits you said, and we always leave room in the budget for room for God, and it was yeah. kind of like you know God will come in there and bless it if you uh, if you trust Him and, and do it. It's He enables us to make the money anyway. He yeah. gives us the mind to manage money, to be a pastor, to be an educator, to be a physician. He gave you those skill sets that you're exploiting for good, and then why not you know be generous back uh, early on as opposed to when I die maybe this will go somewhere. Yeah. I think what you said about you, you have just as much money whether you're given – the fact of the matter is if you're given 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%. I was with David Green, as you said, twice, three times last year. And it wasn't always this way, but now they're giving away 50%. Mm-hmm. And that 50% now is $500 million a year. 
Wow. And it's just it, it's really inspiring to see some of these people across the country that are that are just saying, you know what, God's blessed us with this, and this is God's business or God's money or kind of in this example, this old pastor, this was God's stock and watching it grow and the impact that you can make on that I think is a lot more fun than having an extra fancy car. Dr. Burton P. Sanders, medical doctor, board-certified physician, primary care physician, internal medicine, 30-plus years of family medicine. That's a long run, Doc. Well, it's been a a long journey, but uh, I'm blessed to be here. You started out with an emergency room practice to private practice, on and off as a field team doctor for the Nashville Cats. Yeah, it was kind of fun. I missed those days a little bit, but uh, uh, those, I guess we have to reserve those for the young guys now, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> An avid cyclist, fluent in Spanish, and on your way to being fluent in French? Oh, well, <laughs> we'll get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> I have faith in you, Doc. I have faith in you, Doc. Uh, you're a machine. You work out diligently. You get up at Odark 30. You still see... How many patients do you see a day? 30-plus? We see probably about 28 uh, uh, complicated patients. As as you get older, your patients uh, age with you. And so the complexities and the uh, multiplicities of diagnosis seem to go up as well. Burton, you have seen every kind of uh, complaint and uh, ailment and uh, patients presenting with all kinds of things. Give us a give us an overview if you can, and I know that's a, probably a hard question, but there's common things that all of us are dealing with. Talk to us a little bit about it. Well, I think uh, you know, as you would anticipate, uh, we we have uh, so much trials and tribulations in our life. Uh, so we're dealing with a large percentage of visits that deal with strictly stress, anxiety, depression, emotional disorders, etc. Uh, in related to health issues, we see a, uh, a large number of hypertension, high cholesterol, and uh, diabetes mellitus. And those are my big triad right there. And so, hypertension for the layman is high blood pressure. Yes, sir. Okay. So we have we have a, the high cholesterol, hypertension, diabetics that often come in a package. And then we have all the knocks and, and bruises of life that occur. So we see kind of a, like you said, a, a wide range of, of concerns and we just have to navigate those issues. Now, when, when you talk to these patients, you have this, Dr. Sanders, uh, is it five or six things you always tell them? It depends on what we're dealing with. <laughs> we call it the, if we're dealing with just uh, a patient that is dealing with anything, actually, in any kind of health issue, that what, it's, what I call the big five, helps in anything, headaches, cancer, depression, et cetera. But I think... Uh, it's a good motto or good paradigm to remember, and it's uh, if you want to start off with uh, work hard. It's never a bad thing to work hard. Sometimes we work too hard, and most of the time the people that I end up talking to are working a little too hard, and so setting margins is, is a very important aspect of this. But work hard, rest, that means go to bed at a decent time and wake up at a decent time. Relax, taking a time to let your day get caught up, and that's where – our quiet times are exquisitely important in trying to just quiet the soul. And then we want to, to recreate, and that uh, as believers and, and uh, married folks, it's probably a good time to use your recreation a lot of times, if you especially have children, to do a date night on that. So work hard, rest, relax, recreate, and then, of course, exercise. 
so that when you're looking at the the approach to good health, we obviously have never we've always seen the aspect of mind, body, and spirit. Well, you are the leading authority, as far as I'm concerned, on managing that deal. Uh, but as far as mind, it is these five big issues will help keep the mind satisfied as best you can outside of the the pursuit of Christ. And then the physical, by those ways of setting limits, margins, and and setting disciplines will help you overall in your long-term health. Of your patients, how many percentage-wise do you think exercise? Mm, If I I got 20%, I think that would be good. (laughs) Why is, I mean, with all the, I mean, Goodness gracious, you can't turn on any type of television without some exercise program or machine uh, being, you know, thrown in front of your face, uh, some sort of diet, some sort of prepackaged food to help you lose weight. We've had, we have more stuff accessible today for especially just diet and exercise. Why are Americans so sedentary and unwilling? Well, I think that there's a great deal. I mean, if you ask me, probably one of the biggest diagnoses or uh, complaints would be fatigued. People are inherently tired. They're not doing those the big five. They're not setting their margins. And so a lot of times they're just overrun. So for them to think about exercising is sometimes just too much for them. And the reality is exercise has a paradoxical uh, effect where you have more energy after you exercise, especially after you get over the hump of the the pain and agony that sometimes occurs with sore joints and muscles and things of that nature. But I think um, there it is a fatigue, overwhelmed, life's crisis, and also life responsibilities. You got kids that you got to take to school. You got to get them to 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 wherever they need to be. The after work and after school activities, getting yourself on time to to your employment. Um, meetings after work, uh, it goes on and on. So some people just say, I don't know how I'm going to fit it in. And you know, setting margins is one thing, and then I have to get up earlier and earlier to do your quiet times and your exercise. That, that sometimes just people just have to say, something's got to get. We are also seeing a fixation on health. Uh, obviously, the um, changes in health care and health coverage, uh, the cost, all these things uh, help us as you know, patients who want to do well, what do we do with this, Doc? What do we do about fears of our health and almost an obsession with our numbers, with uh, yeah. the fear of assisted living? How do you help? Well, I, I don't know if there's a there's a answer to all of that. Only to say is, as, as in your podcast and in your ministry over these many years, you know, the joy and knowledge of our salvation is how we mitigate the concerns and anxieties about what's going to happen. You know, we all wonder when we're going to get that shoe drop and someone gives you the diagnosis that you've got something bad, that your health may be declining or uh, that you've got a disc or whatever. I mean, you, you've had great experience with that. So I think that as as we grow in the Lord, we know that uh, that he's got our days numbered, the hairs on our heads numbered, and we just have to kind of trust in that and rely on that and say, you know what, it's set, it's in it's in the books. So whether it comes today, tomorrow, whatever, we know our history. And a great theologian said to me, uh, we're at best in a clean bus station. So <laughs> I don't know who that was. But anyway, um, so I think that's the first platform. Try not to worry about things you can't control 
and then go back to the things you can control, which, again, are those big five. So if you notice, I'm going right back to it. Movement is king. As you get older, movement is king. If you quit moving, you'll ultimately quit moving. If you move, movement gets easier, and you'll be able at 90 to get out of a chair and things of that nature. So that is one thing. And then um, the, the stuff that no one wants to do, advanced directives, estate planning, at least a minimal will, setting up all the stuff afterwards so that as you have issues, that's not a panic. That's not a crisis. It's, well, you know, we've, we've planned for this. We knew this day was coming. And that, that gives you a lot of peace, especially taking care of families and wives and uh, not getting hit in probate and et cetera, of that nature. But the idea is not that we want to move towards death. We want to live each day. And so uh, going back to the original Big Five, and remember that uh, keep moving. And um, my other big thing is your, your mental health, your decision to have a good day. And we have a family saying that disposition is a decision. And so if you get up every day and say, I'm going to make this a good day, chances are more times than not it will be you have uh faced uh, aging parents your dad is in his 90s and uh until recently has worked out twice a day <laughs> <laughs> i think he still does <laughs> <laughs> how much of that's genes doc if you have great genes it's the tractor beam of good health going back to a metaphor but i think um Genes does play a huge role. So if you if you have genes that are contrary to good health, such as early coronary artery disease, uh, multiple cancers, uh, that's where we can start laying some groundwork to try to prevent um, the propensity for those illnesses as well as early detection on other types of illnesses. And, again, God is sovereign. God has our days numbered. And just... Uh, relish each day as it comes. So if I'm going to live each day and I'm going to choose my disposition and not let my circumstance mitigate uh, uh, mandate that, um, mm-hmm. as I get older, as I lose a spouse, as I have, you know, we have to downsize. I mean, boy, so exactly. many of us are unwilling to downsize or resize, I guess, is the is the more accurate uh, nomenclature. What do you tell us? Be, be, be our doctor. Give us some, a prescription here. How do we handle this stuff? Well, when if you're if you're a sibling and your parents are getting older and you're you're kind of with your other siblings, you need to make that call to each other and you say, "Mom and Dad are getting older, and we've got to do something." And they need to get out of that house. They don't need to worry about the light bulbs. They don't need to worry about this. And so, again, proper planning allows for the financial ability to go to the next level if you're. If you can't afford to go, that makes it very difficult. But I would say the best thing you can do about assisted living or the next several steps, retirement or nursing home, and hopefully that is way down the line in in most of our lives, but making an early decision, really making a definitive early decision beyond the advanced directive, beyond, beyond estate planning, beyond all of that, making an early decision, going, you know what, let's sell this house while the market's good. Let's get the place we want to live, not when we have to. If the situation is dictated by a crisis, chances are something's going to give. You're not going to be living with your spouse. You're going to be away from your kids so they can't visit. 
et cetera. But if you can sit there and go, you know what, we're going to do it on our terms while we're feeling good. Let's clean out the attic. Let's get this thing going. Let's pick the place we want to live. And even when you're when you're 90 and you can't do that, the, the earlier you do that, the pace can be slower, which accommodates the goal, which gets you to where you want to be. And uh, you brought up my dad and my uh, stepmom. They uh, they are happy. I mean, they are not like you know. I, you would be feeling really bad if you encouraged this and said, "Guys, you need to you need to get to the next level." And they said, "No, no, no." And you're going, to, well, "We're going to do it anyway." That would and then they end up unhappy. That would not be a, a good outcome. But when many times it's such a relief. You're with other people. You have someone that checks on you. Something breaks, they fix it. It's pretty cool. You and Sharon. Uh... Um, downsized significantly. You moved from a, a lot of acreage and a farm that you had always worked and loved being a part of, animals, horses, all this kind of stuff. Uh, was that hard for you and Sharon? Well, well, in God's perfect timing, you know, we were not always at the same time of when we would want to do this, but it became evident to us in our spirit that it was it was okay. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we have is just stuff. And uh, if you're holding on to it too tight, you have to check your spirit and make sure that you're not holding on because you're proud or you think uh, you're special because you have that stuff. So downsizing often is just a matter of I don't want to give it up because of uh, this is me, this is who I am, uh, you know, your house on the hill, whatever that you put as your importance on those particular subjects. It's all stuff. And so it burns, it it uh, rots, it becomes last year's model. So uh, I, what does is, what is the great theologian say? Uh, bigger, better, more? What bigger, better, newer, more. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but uh, So I, I think the idea is that uh, for us, we were ready. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, being on our terms, we were able to, to go to a place that we're happy. And we got, and by the way, we got really great neighbors. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're 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 very happy about that. And so I think doing it early, you know, making a decision, letting your life be dictated by uh, your margins, by your prayer, by your commitment to make the best decisions, not only for yourself, but for others that you you touch, and uh, that that usually has a better outcome than if you've broke a hip or you've you do have. Uh, um, bad news and you have some health issues that are going to change your trajectory. It's better to be on ahead of it and also to have it on your terms because we are a fallen world. We have illnesses and it breaks our hearts when we have to deal with them. And we're, we, none of us enter that with excitement, of course, uh, uh, but uh, we have to be understanding that this is at best a, a clean bus station and, that uh, when when it happens, we're just we're just closer to the, the greater prize. I know it may be hard to, to capsulize when I mean, you may have done it in your five already. But um, what what do you say to a twenty something when it comes to again as a primary care internal medicine physician? You see this all the time. What are they concerned about? What do they need to be concerned about? Well, I think. Uh, both men and women are facing many, many challenges, and I think as as the the woman is obviously more out of the house working, and a lot of the uh, homes require two incomes, it, it becomes uh, very, very difficult to balance a life. And I've always said, 
I was going to write a book that said striking a balance ages 25 to 45. And, I, but the, the, the commonality is that I would open the book and the pages would be empty because a lot of times there's not a lot of answers. There's not a lot of clarity because when you've got three kids and they're all playing on two different or three different teams and you've got to get them there and you've got to, you know, you travel for a living or you have all these responsibilities. It's really hard to, to strike a balance and all this stuff. So when I tell people that, I says you got to do your best on the big five. You can't, you're not going to knock it out of the park all the time, but you know, prioritizing your, you know, prioritizing your spiritual life, prioritizing, prioritizing your wife, excuse me, uh, your wife. So again, you can put that into your big five with the date night, but your your relaxing moment is quiet time. You can that big five works pretty good, and you can see how that kind of fits into that balancing your life a little bit. Doesn't mean that you're going to have every night off that you can, you know, set your feet up on the TV. I mean, up on the counter and watch TV and stuff. But I think that the uh, the whole idea is trying to do your best to keep those priorities strong and to keep moving. So. One of the things I think that you may be concerned about is, is what do we do with depression, and and that there there are a lot of pharmacologics that that was beyond this discussion, but certainly um, the this big five thing is what I bring up to them, and then I have the sixth thing that comes out of Duke University, which is a pretty profound program, which is where you you do journal, and I know as Christians a lot of times we journal, which is interesting. That was way ahead of Duke, but if you journal. Between the evening hours, seven to nine or seven to eleven, something of that nature, where your brain is able to remember this stuff some, somehow on its physiological basis, you write down three positive things, write a sentence on that, and do that every night. That's as good as most of the pharmacologics we have done in the past, and so that is a, has been a real, really interesting uh, study that came out in the last maybe six, seven years now. So. Interesting, because um, years ago I took this very involved time management course. I think it was called Charles Hobbs or something. It was very valuable. Uh, but one of the sort of ancillary things I gleaned was uh, at the end of the day, write down three things that, you know, maybe you should have gone better. What would you learn? And then three things you were looking forward to the next day. And it was kind of like hindsight and foresight. Okay, what didn't go as well as I wanted it to today? But tomorrow I got a brand new opportunity. And uh, the other thing I learned, and I, I know you do this intuitively, I'm always glancing at my calendar. What's coming up? What's coming up? What I'm looking forward to? What I have to prepare for? What am I a little concerned about? Maybe that's going to take a lot of time and energy. I'm not willing to, to give it right now. But it's just that marker that keeps me thinking forward, uh, even for people who are depressed. Um, and, exactly. and I think you and I, both from a pastoral and a physician perspective, know uh, people that are depressed are probably not working hard, resting well, relaxing, recreating, exercising. All right. And when, when you you know think about, like, with the recreation, which is very difficult, that's why day nights are so uh, workable because it, you don't have to think too hard. But a lot of times if you're single or um, the, the day night thing can't work because of babysitters, a lot of times I have to tell patients, says, you need to go get a legal pad, go over to your local coffee shop, make two lines, and write down your favorite things to do. The second column is when was the last time you do it? And most people that are overworked, overstrapped, and, and depressed or anxious, they can't remember the last time they did their favorite mm-hmm. things. The third column you write in, when are you going to schedule it? And I tell them it has to be intentional. 
It has to be put on your – if you have a daytime or you use your cell phone or whatever, it has to be intentional. And you say, okay, uh, April 23rd, I'm going to go do this, this, and this, and I'm going to have fun doing this. And I think that's where people that branch out, they're naturally drawn to do activities, which kind of is an antidepressant in and of itself because, yes, like you said, you have something to look forward to. You're socializing, you're engaging, and you're doing something that may be constructive. All of those things are – are very, very valuable. And again, this mental health aspect, the physical benefits of being ahead of your illnesses, taking care of your, your medications, your uh, doctor's orders. Huh? Figure that one. How to get that one in, right? That's a commercial, right? <laughs> well, th- this this but, whole uh, discussion is actually a, a a visit with an internal medicine professional without uh, having to uh, file a health claim or pay a copay. <laughs> <laughs> well, believe it or not, that's that's uh, the last thing we really think about when it comes to taking care of people. But we, you know, I I think um, the the young people just doing the best to stay balanced, but putting Christ first, putting your marriage first, letting the kids take care of themselves in those types of situations and then and then bring up your kids in the Lord and being really strong on that keeping moving and then as as we get into our older years I think it's very important to to a keep moving again maybe do the big five in a different sort of way but then on the other hand make those plans painful as they may be and move early don't wait till you lose the house don't wait till you break a hip and you can't be with your wife because you're you're in a nursing home and she's in a uh, skilled, I mean, a skilled facility or uh, or a assisted living. If you do these things, a lot of times when you do break a hip, you're not down for for hours at a time. You have someone that's checking on you. Or you have a a safety uh, alarm button or something that you can get to, or someone would notice that you haven't left your room. Those kinds of things. Dr. Burton Sanders, thanks for your time. Thanks for your expertise, and thanks for your friendship. Psalm 40 reads, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. In Psalm 40, David is writing about hindsight theology. He's looking back on his life and remembering God's faithfulness and his past deliverances. You know, to remember what God has done is actually a command in Scripture. We're not to forget the works of the Lord. We're to remember what he's done for us. The figurative language in Psalm 40, verses 1 to 10, speaks of the desperate situation he was in but he waits patiently. He's not in a hurry. Boy, that's a challenge as we get older, to wait patiently. Don't miss what he attributes to God in this waiting. He inclined his ear. God heard him. God brought him up. God set his feet. God put a new song in his mouth. Isn't that interesting? What the power of a song, and here's the psalmist, the hymn writer, the theology writer David, saying he put a new song on my lips, a new thing of praise. What a wonderful thing that is to have a new thing to sing about. And David says the result will be many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. 
he's thinking forward in the sense of God's faithfulness in my life is not just for me, but it's to affect others. And these lectures and interviews, we've heard from some of our guests talking about different pragmatic things we can do. We can learn from others' past. We can learn from God's faithfulness today in our own experiences. As our guest reminded us of a lot of good things, both Jeff Dobines and Dr. Sanders, I listen to that and I'm engaged and I'm encouraged and then I'm overwhelmed. How do I do all these things? Let me encourage you, you cannot do them all at once. From personal experience, it takes time to get your financial house in order. It takes time to get your health in order. But you can do it. Your first appointment with a financial planner uh, may ensue many more appointments. You may have to vet two or three planners before you find one that you like and trust. But it's one thing you can do is schedule an appointment. Make three appointments in the next two, three weeks with three different planners. Hear what they offer you. See what they charge you. Find out where they're coming from. Start somewhere. It's not that hard to make a phone call. It's not that hard to make an appointment. It will take some time. The same is true with Dr. Sanders' recommendations about working hard, resting, relaxing, recreating, and exercise. Don't be overwhelmed by the lists. Lists can dismantle a lot of us. But you and I can do one thing. We can do the next thing. And as you start checking these off one by one, you'll be impressed at the power of simply getting your financial house in order, the peace that it will bring, knowing you're saving well, you're investing well, you're planning for your future, you're living under your income, you're living under your means, you're able to help other people, you're able to give to the Lord. All these will accumulate and you will find a peace that really does pass comprehension because you'll be a good steward of what God has given you. This is Michael Easley in Context. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.